Hello and welcome to another bumper episode of Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the people who will be raking through the ashes of Boris Johnson's reputation. First up, commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Uh, we will go very far from our shores to begin with. Russian troops are massing at the Ukrainian border. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has flown to Europe for meetings with Ukraine and the EU before sitting down with the Russian foreign minister. And UK Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has sent anti-tank weapons to Ukraine and written a punchy critique of Putin's ethno-nationalism and NATO blaming. What do you think is the most likely uh, outcome of all this kind of frantic diplomacy but also flexing? That depends on Putin. The situation is quite worrying because, you know, in classic game theory, it's not it's not just about resources. It's about the level of commitment. And the problem at the moment is that, you know, Putin is throwing everything physically troops at the border and the entire West has basically ruled out any kind of military inter- intervention and are saying, you know, we, we do very harsh economic sanctions. So... He's ripped the steering wheel of his car, as it were, and it all depends on whether he's doing it in order to extract some diplomatic compromises and to force the West to a situation where they basically promise not to make Ukraine a full member of NATO, things along those lines, or whether he's doing it because he intends to invade. And if he intends to invade, unless the West commits to a physical presence, their economic sanctions won't do diddly squat, I'm afraid. Uh, Ben Wallace's essay was quite good, wasn't it? Quality content from (laughs) gov.uk. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it was punchy, but it's just words. Um, And... It's a you know that's that was the problem when they annexed the Crimean Peninsula is that you know by the time they had established their own government there the West was still trying to discuss whether to do something. Yeah, the new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has not confirmed that he was to spend the Nord Stream two gas pipeline from Russia to Germany if Russia attacked. Merkel was pretty bad over Russia. It was yeah. pretty sort of uh, okay. So the, friendly slash subservient. What do you, do you think? Schultz will. Do you think it's a Ger, Do you think it's a Germany thing? I think it's a, a German. I think it's a Germany thing. I think saber rattling for obvious historical reasons is not Germany's style. The uh, gas line is actually suspended at the moment since the middle of November because the um, the energy regulator there said it could not continue its approval process until the company, which is registered in Switzerland, transfers its main assets and staffing budget to its German subsidiary. So they're essentially suspending it for admin reasons mm, in order okay. to avoid this out-and-out confrontation, which I don't think is bad. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock was in Moscow yesterday meeting with her counterpart Sergei Lavrov and she said, we have no choice but to defend our common rules even at a high sometimes economic price. That seems to me quite a clear signal that Germany will not put up with a Ukrainian invasion. Minnie Rahman is from the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hi, Dorian. Monday night was good. The House of Lords voted down 14 measures in the police crime sentencing and courts bill that we've been talking about for a while. Did you see that that hammering coming? I mean, it was amazing. I, I wouldn't say that I was expecting that scale of success, especially because Labour's announcement that they would oppose the amendments did come quite late after the Lib Dems and the Greens. But I think this is really a massive credit to campaigners across the board. And for me, this is kind of where the magic lies when movements come together. You've had all kinds of actors for a long time calling for opposition on this bill. You had the Sarah Everard protests, which were perhaps the beginning of that cycle. And it's it's ended up with collaboration from civil rights groups and environmental groups. And I think when things align in that way, you have to expect that there will be some chain of reaction, or at least that's the theory. So yeah, it was amazing. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, Dominic Roberts said the government will try again, as it does. Uh, But which measures can Mm. be reinstated by the Commons? Aren't some of the new public order offences dead now? 
for parliamentary reasons. Yeah, yeah. So the bit that Raab has interestingly come out fighting for and which has had a lot of coverage was turning misogyny into a hate crime. And he said the Law Commission doesn't agree with that. And that was an amendment that was tabled um, by a crossbench peer. I think regardless of that, the problem with the government amendments is the way that they were added to the bill, which includes the public order offences. So because they introduced them after the bill had passed through the Commons, MPs weren't able to vote on them, which actually gave the Lords a little bit more power than usual. So the Lords were able to fully remove them from the bill, which means that the government can't put them back in during ping pong between the two houses. But what they could do if they really wanted to is put in a whole new bill and essentially start again with those amendments included from the beginning. But I think if they if they did that, that would bring a whole new dimension of opposition. So it's a kind of watch this space thing. I suppose they have to decide how much they want to invest in every single one of these measures. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it would be quite risky given how this has gone down in the first place. Our guest this week is the chief features writer of the Financial Times Weekend magazine and writes a weekly satirical column on politics and culture. He's also the author of How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. Welcome, Henry Mance. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for coming in. The government's just announced the end of Plan B restrictions, including the mask mandate, COVID passports for large venues and advice to work from home. You're not working from home. You're, you're here in the studio. Um, do you think that that's a sort of solid policy supported by the science or a kind of political, you know, measure in a very difficult time for them? Because Scotland and Wales are also doing things like reopening nightclubs. Yeah, I think the trajectories are within a pretty, you know, small margin either way. I mean, whether you go more cautious, like other parts of the UK have, or slightly more easygoing, free free living, like the Conservatives want to, to take England, then I, I mean, I think you can see a, a pretty clear trajectory. Co- uh, countries that have had the Omicron wave seem to be going through in sequence this um, sort of uh, peak of infections. I think it's sort of looking fairly optimistic from a pandemic point of view. And I think actually what's interesting is that you know, if you're a Tory, you think, oh, that will coincide with a with a rush of popularity. <laughs> but actually, it's a bit like D-Day, you know, straight after D-Day, which was what was once what the sort of end of pandemic restrictions was likened to. You know, you have D-Day, you've got this great sort of uh, victory that flows from that. And actually, then people say, right, we've been through this. And now we, we thank you very much for, for all the job you've done <laughs> or not. Uh, but now we're, we're ready to change leaders. So there isn't a sort of gratitude in the, um, in the process. And I think likewise, the Tories, having thought that they've earned credit from the vaccine rollout and, and, and opening things up now, will actually not get much of the bounce that they're expecting, that people's gratitude will be very limited. Yes, because we're not post-COVID, but politics feels much more post-COVID. Yeah, I mean, look, the the big thing today in was Prime Minister's questions at midday on a, on a on a Wednesday, and then you had the announcement of restrictions being eased shortly after that, and sort of basically overshadowed. So, like, mm. it's like the political circus is happening rather than the health mm. and safety mm. announcement, um, which uh, which yeah may matter more to people's life. I think what really matters to people right now is people who are thinking about going back to the office or thinking about resuming their normal lives, going to the theatre, going to cinema, going to restaurants. What really matters is whether you have to isolate for five days because people are super cautious if they think they're going to have to, they have the potential of a whole week being wiped out. And Mm. once that comes to an end in March, I think there are going to be quite sort of significant changes in the way people live their lives. Meanwhile, in what I think we should still call cyberspace, uh, you recently interviewed uh, (laughs) Facebook VP Nick Clegg in the Metaverse, their virtual reality platform. Um, He and Meta believe the future of technology is the virtual world where presumably we could all shelter from the next pandemic. Um, you interviewed him across a digital table. Do you agree? Was it was it was it a thrilling experience? Uh, <laughs> not not the Clegg's bit, but the, um, you know. yeah, I, um, it was quite weird. So like, we were meant to meet in person, and he was, he was coming to like uh, to lobby European politicians. So we were meant to meet here, and then Omicron hit, and he was like, "I'm not coming." And then they suggested, "Look, well, we you know we, we're obviously big onto the metaverse. Let's meet in um, let's meet using the uh, VR headsets we've got." And um, I, I logged into this meeting room and I found myself sort of um, separated by a seat from him. Someone who was organising a meeting said, can you just move a seat closer to Nick? Just just, just click this virtu- this button yeah. and you'll virtually, your, your avatar will move closer. <laughs> and I did that. And then when I arrived in the seat next to him, I felt like I was in his personal space. So there was like a really weird thing of like, okay, we're just pixels here, mm. but I feel too close to you in this photo. I mean, may, it might have been in the Clegg thing. Who knows? But um, <laughs> I, 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 look, it's like watching like a really early version of the internet. It's it's pretty crap. But I think I think like there's obviously limitations with people staring at their phones all day. 
I mean, I'm I'm sort of pretty skeptical of people like Meta, but you know, I mean, something's going to happen there. The amount of money that Microsoft and mm. uh, Google, Facebook, and others are throwing into the metaverse. Oh, it's coming whether we like it or not. Could you potentially then in the future interview Nick Clegg in something like the the sort of the Doctor Strange sequence in uh, the latest Spider-Man movie where it's just like things folding in on themselves, kind of whizzing <laughs> through kind of like mad geometry. Like why have a... When you've got the entire metaverse at your disposal, why have a table? Be quite distracting <laughs> for the interview itself. <laughs> if you're running from a universe that's caving into itself. It, it, yes. It'd make it more exciting for you, but I feel it would make for a worse interview is what I'm saying. Did you read that thing about the Danish journalist who, who went to a brothel? Um, is this a joke? No, no, did an interview um, with um, with people, with customers, while having sex with one of them. And it was like, okay, that wins the interview of the year prize anyway. So, like, yeah, you've got to be more innovative these days. And I think maybe the metaverse gives you a, a platform. For- if you have to choose between the two, I would go for the metaverse. So the real limitation yeah. is, by the way... You thought sitting next to Clegg was bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there was one stage where I was trying, I was trying to work out, like, um, abuse rules within the metaverse. So I said, could I just walk over and punch you? And then I realised that this was a kind of quite offensive thing to say to someone who's obviously uh, suffered a bit of abuse. I feel I, the major limitation of all those headsets at the moment is that they can't pick up on facial expressions. So your, mm. your hand movements they've got, and they've got really well, and that's great for gaming and stuff, but facial expressions, you can't see when you say something whether someone actually is offended or amused or whatever. And but that will come. They will put it in, they will, they will build the sensors uh, they will do it, and uh, yeah. well, it's very exciting. I'm sure nothing can go wrong. With this, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> this week on Carry On Up the Johnson, it's all happening. Uh, the Sue Gray report into Partygate is imminent. Uh, Full blown backbench rebellion is wondering whether to force a vote of no confidence. And Berry South MP Christian Wakeford has defected to Labour. Is the PM a dead man walking? Plus, when in doubt, Tories attack the BBC. We discuss Nadine Doris's latest culture war salvo and the broader debate about how to fund the Beeb in the age of streaming. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we're handing ourselves the reins for Auntie. If we were in charge, what would we change? First this week, the wheels are coming off Boris Johnson's clown car. Uh, Alex, we'll get straight in. You're our unofficial PMQ sketch writer. Um, what, What happened today? So there was a lot of noise. I mean, the Tory backbenchers tried to create a deliberately chaotic atmosphere because they know he's months. got no serious <laughs> answers to serious questions. So all they can do is turn it into panto. But I feel that there's something shrill, there's something brittle about their energy, like that they shout, the more they shout, the more they're glancing sideways at, is anyone holding the, you know, the starting pistol for this leadership content? There's something quite empty and fragile about it. Um, Johnson, for his part, I would say rallied a bit. I mean, it's all relative. I say rallied in comparison to the interview he he did the day before with Beth Rigby, where he looked like he was about to run to his bedroom, belly flop onto the bed and say, no one gets me, I hate you. Well, Tory MPs are telling journalists that he's been in tears. Yeah, Um, (laughs) Like every sitcom out of ideas, I think his, his notion of rallying was basically a best of clip show. Um, it was stitching together his favourite lines from times back then. Um, I mean, the problem mainly for he, for him was that his performance was bookended by two very significant events. So right before he stood up, Christian Wakeford, uh, 2019 intake Red Wall MP, defected to Labour, actually walked across the aisle. And right at the end, on the very last question, we must have been thinking, I've done it, I'm home free. David Davis stood up and called for his resignation in the strongest possible Well, he did the classic, because obviously uh, sketch writers love like when you bring out, I suppose, like the classic, like an old yeah, hit, yeah, yeah. you cover an old hit. Yeah. <laughs> and he did In the Name of God Go, yes. which was originally uh, Oliver Cromwell, the OG um, and then made more face by Leo Amory to Neville Chamberlain. Uh, and then Johnson said he'd never heard the quote, which uh, implies that maybe he didn't write his Churchill book himself after I'm all. sure that was in jest, uh, I, I, would, I would think. Um, now, Wakeford is best known 
uh, for calling <laughs> Owen Patterson a cunt in the Commons lobby, an outburst he later blamed on codeine. So he sounds like a lot of fun. Um, what else do we know about him? Well, he's the MP for Bury South. <laughs> he's <laughs> 37. Yeah. He's 37. Uh, he used to sell insurance for a living. Um, as I understand it, he tried to become a Labour councillor before joining the Conservative Party. So maybe he's Labour curious, has always been. It was quite a peculiar... I mean, he won the constituency by 400 votes. Mm. It was literally 0.8%. Um, and it was a quite peculiar constituency because it was Ivan Lewis's old seat. And you may remember he was suspended over some sexual misconduct allegations, then ended up resigning over the anti-Semitism row, then ended up advising his constituents to vote Conservative. So it really was quite a a weird little seat. The Conservatives, of course, are calling for a by-election. And Labour are saying, I think very cleverly, well, the Prime Minister is welcome to call a general election and put that hypothesis to the test. Um, So um, We'll actually be talking about the by-election issue uh, later. Yeah. Um, Minnie, reportedly the last straw for Wakeford was the whips threatening to take away his seat with boundary changes. Um, It's also said that Johnson has failed to launch a charm offensive on restive MPs, whatever that might look like. Is he sort of at a loss how to win back the rebels? It seems like they they don't know what to do with all these angry people. Mm, yeah, I mean, just on, on Wakeford, you know, I think that point that Alex made about having a majority of only 402 in a red wall seat, I think that has played quite a, a major role in why he's crossed the floor back to Labour. And it makes sense in light of recent polls. So I was reading one of these kind of anonymous comments from MPs about Boris Johnson. And one of these MPs said that Boris Johnson wasn't actually taking the threats of 1922 committee's let- letters seriously at the weekend and was actually quite shocked by the whip saying, you know, oh, shall we try and rally support? I think that's quite fitting for Boris to not take something seriously. But at this point, you know, the rebels are so diverse, it would actually take a kind of a house of cards style Machiavellian genius to convince them all, all of them to continue to support him and to promise them things for doing that. You know, you've got the Red Wall Tories who are worried about their constituents and how they feel about the next election. You've got the anti-lockdown people who are pissed off and just kind of using this as ammunition. And then you've got the, you know, I, I like to call them the Tories with an occasional conscience group who know that Partygate was totally unacceptable behaviour. And actually, it's really hard to bring that group of people together. And I think that's quite visible in this kind of like frantic, how can we appease everyone um, stance that, that Johnson is taking at the minute. The, the interesting twist to me is that Wakeford had been considering defecting for months and Labour had actually been talking to him for quite a while, not just pre-Partygate, but pre-Patterson. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is to do with somebody, like at least said, a Labour-curious MP with a very narrow majority, therefore a one-off? Or do you think this reveals a sort of depth of dissatisfaction that perhaps people didn't notice before these scandals? Yeah, I mean, I, I find it very hard to understand um, Tory MPs' decision-making processes. You know, there's things that I would have been a dissident for long before this. Mm. But I think... What Henry said earlier about this kind of moment of D-Day moment, you know, we're coming through the end of this crisis or the end is at least somewhere in sight. And how does that impact on what people say? You know, I think you can't go through a pandemic and Brexit and not have people who are annoyed at things that you've done either way. But people have probably kept those feelings quite below the bar or to the best of their ability below the bar because we've been going through a big crisis a health crisis and I think now that we're sort of returning to normality and people are looking ahead at elections and the public mood is changing MPs are probably going to start making more decisions that that don't require the backing of a crisis PM. Henry so we've got David Davis now we're following the Scottish Tories commemorative Brexit Toby Jug Andrew Bridgen um, and <laughs> most importantly, it seems that the 2019 intake, uh, which we, we, I mean, it's not the same as the Red Wall, it's often associated with 
Well, once assumed to be sort of thirsty loyalists who owed their careers to Johnson, now government sources are branding them feral, um, (laughs) saying they basically weren't domesticated by physically being in the Commons during lockdown, so they just don't know they're like shitting everywhere and and they can't be controlled. Um, What's it's such a it's so different to the assessment that was being made of this intake in December 2019. Like, what's going on with these guys? That is really interesting. I mean, I love these quotes because they're just like not helping. Um, There was another one I saw, which is. uh, Martin Vickers asking, uh, you know, Tory MP um, being asked why why he wasn't um, putting in a letter. And he says, well, I'm going to wait for the Sue, Sue Gray report. Even a serial killer gets their day in court. And it's like, don't say that. It's <laughs> <laughs> the party leader. <laughs> Try to help. Um, so, so, yeah, look, I, I, I think it's hard to know. We, you know it, it's up to a, a, quite a small number of people. But look, the electorate itself is very volatile at the moment, isn't it? People have, over the last few years, people will have voted for two or three parties in many mm. cases. And I think MPs are not really uh, averse to that themselves. I mean, the, you know, of course you have people who go into politics who believe absolutely everything that one party does and or are c- completely committed to that, like I don't know, Alan Mack, you know, just you see your loyalty as your, your ticket to the top. But there are others who would just sort of believe some things, believe others could have gone either way. I mean, and there have been always been. I mean, Rory Stewart, um, you know, could have joined another party had the other party been in the ascendance when that was happening. And um, I think also, you know, people, are, MPs are just so much more tied to their constituencies and the feedback they're getting than people who have been in that, you know, than, mm-hmm. than certainly people who were elected 40 years ago. But I think people like, if you think about Owen Patterson or something, they've sort of, they've they've had a relationship, they've sort of risen above it, they've sort of, they're, they're sort of above the sort of day-to-day fray of what constituency feedback is. I wonder if you're a newer MP, you're much more exposed to that and much more dependent on it. Especially from that red wall, because, you know, the, the, the straightest reading of that is that that massive voter movement that we saw in the last election where loads of seats went um, to the Conservatives, and they didn't go by a little, you know, those yeah. were big swings. And now you look at the polling, and they've swung right back the other way. And you might just be one of those people that basically bought Johnson's shtick that, you know, will be different now and will be a part of the people now. Well, it does make you think, yeah, okay, this maybe reflects what the voters are thinking, because there was this idea, okay, this is a sort of permanent or at least a long-term shift. Yeah. But if the MPs that owe their seats to Johnson are sort of doubly furious and maybe feeling, rather than gratitude, yeah. just a sense of, of of betrayal, like, oh, you've landed me in it, then it does make you think that the, that the theory that a lot of the, all these Labour voters going Tory and once you once you go blue, you never go back kind of thing, you know, might not hold up. And actually, a lot of people might feel like they've been conned. Yeah, and nobody likes to feel they've been conned. They, I can't remember who who said it. It was an American sort of political theorist that was talking about the Obama selection, and they were saying that the measure of uh, converting a voter is to get them to vote for you in two general elections in the row, that it's only then yes. that you can consider them a sort of Republican vote, voter or a Democrat mm. voter because once might just be a, I've had it with you, I'm going to kick you. Henry, apart from Michael Fabricant and his amazing hair, who <laughs> is on Johnson's side? Like, who who do you see defending him, not in a kind of dutiful, like, I'm preparing my leadership campaign way but in a in a sort of genuinely like come on guys this guy's great um nadine doris um she loves him doesn't uh, she? she really does love him uh, yeah um and also the other person that i see often there is zach goldsmith and like there i do feel a bit torn because zach goldsmith you know throw tomatoes at him for quite a lot of stuff mm. but like he hasn't he has an environmental argument there which is you know, whoever comes in is not going to be as committed to the green agenda as Boris. You know, you may think getting Boris out is a way of then getting a you know pro-green government in, i.e. Labour-led. Mm-hmm. But you're going to have a year or so where it's Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss saying, ah, a bit expensive that, why don't we uh, reduce fuel duty or whatever we do yeah. or, or, or or build a few uh, a couple of airports or, or whatever it might be. So, yeah, I, th- I think he's a real, really committed. But these are people who were brought back into the fold, really, by Boris. And I think, yeah, if you're a 2019 intake... You don't see you. You might think you owe your seat to Boris Johnson, but you don't feel that he's going to decide of your political career. I think that is really interesting yeah. that you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And this whole thing about them being domesticated by the older MPs. I mean, the older MPs rebelled against Cameron, rebelled against May, 
And so what, now they think they're in a position to tell the younger ones, don't rebel against Johnson. It's not how we do things around here. <laughs> I mean, it's ludicrous. It doesn't make any, um, uh, any sense. Half the time with fabricants on TV, I think they're trailing the new Fraggle Rock to be entirely honest. <laughs> He's a, he's a wonderful character. Uh, brings brings joy to the nation. Uh-huh. Um, now, it seems almost like it's kind of weird. This would have been like our top story, the sort of party allegations that since uh, last week's episode, more have come out. Mm. It really is just, uh, um, just an endless, an endless Woodstock. Um, most damagingly, the one on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral. Yeah. Uh, Dominic Cummings insists that Johnson knew about the drinks in May 2020, which, of course, he says he did not, and was actually warned not to let them go ahead, and he's going to be speaking to Sue Gray. Mm. Um, meanwhile, Dominic Raab on Sky News accidentally admitted that a party took place. Um, <laughs> poor old Dom- Every Dominic Raab interview I, is a I, trial. I, re- I repeat my assessment yeah. of Dominic Raab. He's always like Sam in Quantum Leap when he's oh. just jumped into a new oh, body God. and he's trying to work out... Who am I? Where am I? And how should I answer? <laughs> and I don't think this is. I would not bring this up if I thought it was an actual speech impediment. But but he he has a painful kind of uh, and uh, what uh, eh, uh, and it's it's not it doesn't seem it's not like a stammer. It's no, just like it's literally a playing like, for time. It's thing. just like literally every fucking syllable is like a high wire act, and it goes. I don't know where the sentence is going. I don't know what I believe. I don't know what I'm about to accidentally admit. Maybe a party. I just don't know why they let him, why they still let him go out and do this stuff. He just makes so many mistakes. I don't, I don't think like, they have much. flop sweat. His voice is sweating. They ain't got that much choice at the moment, do they, For in yeah, terms of senior yeah. uh, cabinet people going out there to defend the PM. So so is he banking on, because he said lying to Parliament, he agreed that lying to Parliament was a resignation offence. So is he banking on good news? I mean, are the government sort of, if they, do they know something about Sue Gray's report that we don't, or did he, or did he just panic? I think Johnson has assured them that he will be cleared. I think that's what it is. So that's the only proviso under which they will go out there to de- to defend him, to say let's wait for the report and then you know because they, they've been assured that it's it's going to be much better. I mean that that is what someone of. Johnson's psychology would do. He'd play for an extra five days, you know, to try and work out a way to get himself out of out of the pickle. And I can completely see him doing that. Everyone says, what, what will Dominic come and say to Sue Gray? For me, what will Martin Reynolds say? Will he say, I did consult with Boris Johnson before I sent the email? Or he did know? Or people came and had a word with me and I had a word with Boris? I mean, like, he, he, he's got the Prime Minister's future in his hands there. And I think when Boris Johnson reassures other people that it's all going to be fine, he doesn't know what other people are telling Sue Gray. And so it's yeah, all yeah. It almost like it's too late to avoid the iceberg. You've just got to say we're not going to sink. And, and that's the only also, way of keeping it together. He's pledged to tackle this drinking culture at Number 10, which according to people who previously worked in Number 10 before Johnson, <laughs> wasn't there a wasn't thing. a drinking <laughs> it culture. It wasn't a thing. And it was, it's very much like the, you know, the, the kind of meme of the guy dressed as a hot dog. With the hot dog <laughs> car has crashed into the window. Yeah, he goes, we've got to find the guy who did this. It's like, it's a paper dragon created by Johnson so that he can slate at a later date if he gets into trouble and look tough and decisive. But I think my instinct as someone who worked in the civil service for a very long time is that I would be astonished if there isn't a paper trail. Hmm. I would Ooh. be astonished if... Senior civil servants, Peston is reporting in the New Statesman today that there was an email. So the the person, the sender of the email wants to remain secret, but Peston has seen an email from someone senior in Downing Street to Reynolds saying, we should cancel this. I appreciate the kind sentiment, but it breaks the rules. The idea that Reynolds then just took that decision when we know that Cummings also had misgivings about yeah. the, the party. It just seems to me astonishingly uncivil service. Like your instinct as a senior civil servant would be to create a paper trail mm. and get it cleared by someone more senior than you. And there is only one person. Well, the Sue Gray report seems like probably going to be an emergency podcast situation. Yeah. Um, (laughs) For her too, I suspect. (laughs) (laughs) She can come on if she wants. Um, 
Minnie, the darker side of this is that uh, at the beginning of the week, the government opened their emergency red meat locker and immediately attacked the BBC and, of course, migrants uh, crossing the channel. Do you think that that's had any sort of impact? Is this the kind of is this the most sort of brutally obvious example of using uh, channel migrants for pure political expediency? Or is this just uh, what they do all the time? I mean, yeah, they do it all the time. But I could have absolutely predicted that this would be the response. You know, we actually had conversations about this last week or, you know, as a joke in the office. When when is it going to come up? When are migrants going to come up in response to Party 8? So, you know, I think anyone could have predicted that and actually someone who is not me should go and put a plot on a graph how these things align you know crisis migrants and see how close they are together I don't think it is working this time as it has previously just because I think that they've exhausted this this option in the last year you know they've talked about channel crossings so much and there's been you know very recent tragedies in the channel that I think the the national public might be starting to zone out of it a little bit I mean there's probably still a lot of interest in and around Kent where it's more visible and people are worried about people dying on the beach outside their house but I don't think it will have the same cut through at the minute or at least it hasn't felt the same to me and it feels kind of tired and and useless at this point. So wrapping up, I suppose, to, to go back to Johnson, Alex, rebel MPs um, <laughs> are clearly sort of unsure whether to strike now because under the rules, if Johnson won a vote of no confidence, there couldn't be another one for a year. Mm. But I wonder if some of the MPs who think that this is too soon might prefer too soon to an, a year with a wounded PM, you know, in which he wins a vote of no confidence, but not emphatically then nobody can challenge, then they're stuck with him for, for another year. What do you, f- I mean, nobody, we, we, this, it sort of changes all the time. Do you feel like those letters are going to go in this week? We're going to get that challenge. You know, I do because I, I have the, you know, those um, games that you play in the arcades with the two P pieces or the 10 P pieces, mm-hmm. it just feels like everything that goes in the pot just pushes a few off the edge. Mm. And every poll that comes out is worse for them. And they have small minorities to defend. And the conduct itself is pretty indefensible. So it just feels like a few of them will drop off the edge every time. Now, whether uh, Johnson wins that vote or not, I don't know. I will point out that you know, Thatcher went at a time when she was supposed to be adored by the parliamentary party, um, bar a few exceptions, and the membership. So um, if she didn't survive this kind of challenge, I don't know how someone who by all accounts has zero allies in parliament. I mean, he has people who really love him, like Nadine Dorries, mm. genuinely love him. But he doesn't have people who are his allies politically, who see him as someone who represents their wing of the party, their way of thinking. And it's very, very yeah. difficult to see a, a situation where he survives it. Henry, just to finish this section, until very recently, uh, I'm talking like November here. The pundit consensus was that Johnson was scandal-proof, and all in Teflon, and all his flaws were priced in, and sort of everything. It was almost like a Trumpian argument, like whatever he did wrong, it was like, ah, but people like it when he does things wrong. That seems not to be the case now. <laughs> what do you think that that sort of consensus misjudged? I mean, I think the peak of kind of misunderstanding Boris Johnson was after the Hartlepool by-election, which it was actually their peak in the polls as well. But everyone was like, look, this, this, is, this shows the beginning of a cycle of Tory dominance, of Johnson's dominance. Mm. We've got a decade in power here. And um, if I blow my own trumpet, but I did write on the day after that, like all the people who have done well in these local elections and in the Hartlepool by-election are basically incumbents. And it's like a post-pandemic or mid-pandemic attitude by the electorate that they don't that they're in crisis mode and they don't want to change horse and the other thing that's obviously changed is that we've gone from scandals which are quite difficult to understand or quite um mm. abstract like ppe paperwork. procurement is the one yeah PPE, about, yeah, yeah certainly um and like, yeah i don't think we've heard the laughter of that but but yeah that's all and i think i think also people felt that the opposition were talking down to them they were saying 
the government has made some mistakes in the pandemic and we would have been far cleverer. And they were they were playing, I told you so. And, and Keir Starmer had that, that problem at PMQs where he sounded like, like your boss telling you were a bit crap at your job and he would have done it much better if he just didn't delegate anything to you. Mm. And I don't think that was a great look. Whereas now everybody can say, oh, I didn't have a party. And so the scandal's that much easier. The pundit consensus was to look back on what had happened and to think that that would inevitably go forward. And instead of realising that actually globally, incumbents were doing pretty well in that moment. Mm-hmm. It is an amazing thing, given that we are living, as we could say, in really chaotic, unprecedented times. The pundit mistake that keeps happening over and over again is to look at whatever is happening now and think and just predict that's going to continue. Well, the other thing, <laughs> the other thing is real wages. And it's like where people feel it in the pocket. Like yeah. in 2017... The th- people that, one of the things we won't talk about is that real wages were going down at the time of the general election. There, were being re- there was a real squeeze. And that's what's happened over the last few months. So, I mean, I, th- I think there's also people don't will, will always attribute their, their discomfort to, to, to other things. But if they're being squeezed in the pocket, that is going to give them less benefit of the doubt towards the government. Well, our but your emails this week is kind of a little coda uh, to, mm. to the main topic. This week, Greg asks... Hot from Christian Wakeford defecting from Tory to Labour and anticipating a change of Prime Minister, should MPs who change parties face a by-election? And should a PM who's put into office by the membership, not the voters, be required to face a general election? Yeah, I mean, I think this is such an interesting question. So thank you to Greg. And it actually, I, I went back and forth on it a couple of times. You know, I think the question is, it's quite context specific. You know, in the last few years, There's been so many changes in government leadership outside of elections and such big political things like Brexit that it's felt almost ridiculous that there hasn't been a general election at the same time as feeling like there's too many general elections. (laughs) Not another Um, one. (laughs) So, I mean, I think if you try and take it out of the context and let's say there's like a normal time in politics and, and a leader has to stand down because of something like illness or family commitments, you know, I don't think that should necessarily be an election matter. And actually, I think what this comes down to is about democratic reform and trust in government processes, which have really been abused in the last few years. If I was going to start on democratic reform, the kind of things that I would put in place would be like, recall of your MP so that you could apply something like defections to that because if you know constituents say actually my MP is defected and now I want a local election then fair enough they could do that and then move on to kind of electoral reform in general so I kind of had to take it out of the picture that we're currently in and think about what the big things are that are needed. I'm inclined to say no I mean it's probably quite a bit of money involved and you get really low turnout And also, one MP doesn't really matter very much. I mean, like, in the scheme of things, they're still going to represent you on the constituency issues that they represented you before. But it's not like they've got a swing vote on in Parliament to decide which way things go. They just, I mean, and actually, I think the history of most of these people is that they, you know, they're set fire to their career when they change parties. What about the PM, though? What about a PM who changes midway? Oh, what, so, so as in like uh, yeah, Major Johnson? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, you know what? The history is, of that is really interesting as well. I remember when Theresa May was in power and everyone was saying she's not going to have a, a general election for four years or whatever. I went back and I looked at the history of when there'd been a change in power. And actually, prime ministers generally don't last very long without mm. Um, mm. Yeah. a general election. And so I think in a way it, doesn't, it just doesn't seem the biggest problem in the system. Yeah, yeah. My, my, I, suppose I agree on, on by-elections. I mean, I suppose just to look at the rules, it's like the, it's, it's the individual who gets elected, technically. Mm. Now, you, Mr. Actually, of course, it's really the party that gets elected. And as we've seen, a lot of the time when those kind of Tory uh, exiles yeah. stood, you know, even really popular people like Dominic Grieve, whatever, they got hammered by the Tories. So it, the people do vote for the party, but kind of technically, you vote for the individual. And I'm kind of, I'm sort of, I'm fine with that. And as Henry points out, this allegation of, there's this allegation of careerism. Do you remember when all those people formed TIG and then Change UK? And it was like they're careerists. And like all of them finished their political careers and were more likely than not to do so. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't quite see this sort of idea of just like that this is that, you know, that defecting or leaving your party to go independent is some kind of like cynical self-interested move. Often it just seems like we're well, going to have a load of people really angry with you. You possibly lose your your seat yeah. in the next election. I don't really see a kind of a particularly ethical or democratic argument for why you would have to have a, a by-election. Hmm. Um, 
My my first instinct was to say, yes, there should be a by-election or a general election if there's a change of PM. But then, actually, I, in truth, I think the party system and the whipping system is actually a corruption of the separation of powers. And we shouldn't be doing anything that encourages the idea that you elect a party and you elect a prime yeah. minister. Yeah. We shouldn't be encouraging that. We should be encouraging people to think the opposite way, that to look into the individual they're casting their vote for rather than the rosette. And so I think that's the more mature democratic option. I agree. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Next this week, in last week's Mail on Sunday, Culture Secretary Nadine Doris, big Bojo fan, took on that classic Tory bugbear, the BBC, announcing that this licence fee announcement will be the last. The fee has been frozen for the next two years, and a future funding model is uh, TBC. Mini, this announcement's clearly been rushed out as part of what nobody is now calling Operation Save Big Dog, <laughs> which is a shame because I love for the five minutes that Operation Save Big Dog was a thing. I quite enjoyed it. Um, it is quite weird to say you're abolishing the license fee without announcing a new funding model. Do you get the sense that there is a plan here that they're just kind of going to make it a surprise? Yeah, I, I, look, I, as we talked about with the, the pivot to like talking about mi- migrants, you know, I don't think any of these proposals were very well thought through. I don't think they're necessarily policy coherent. They're rushed. The government is panicking and they're trying to do anything they think can appease their backbenchers. They know that, you know, if there's one thing the Tory right hate more than an illegal party, it is the BBC. <laughs> And the truth is, the BBC is not perfect. It gets criticism from both sides. It's an amazing institution that we should be grateful for. But there are things to think about in terms of reform. Now, if she was serious about reforming the funding model, it's very obvious. You know, you would look at it and you would go, OK, it's not a progressive model. So let's think about ways to fund it in a fairer way. And it's quite obvious that because she hasn't done that and there is no plan for a funding model, it's more a political statement, which isn't very well thought through. Hats off to her, though, for sort of framing it as removing a financial burden from the hard off. Mm. A time of uh, rampant inflation, rocketing fuel prices and an imminent VAT rise. Yeah, but few. But, you know, your £157 a year, that... It's not going to go up to £162. (laughs) Yeah, that's the... uh, That's you can you can use the six pounds you've saved there to uh, pay uh, 0.1% of your fuel bill. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, the license fee is being squeezed, I think, from two directions. You've got the older people who many of you don't want to pay, younger people that say they, well, they don't need it because they're not, you know, they're not using the, the services or they don't have a television. Do you think what do you think would be the best solution for the BBC? There's a few different models and hybrids as well that have been suggested. Do you have an instinct of of something that would seem fair rather than a sort of an act of like political sabotage? I think there's a a syllogistic error in there that you could transpose to health, to social care, to any kind of public service. I think we always ask, what can we afford? The first question should be, do we want this? Does it perform a a useful function. Mm. The next question should be, what do we want it to do? The question after that should be, how much will that cost? And it's the very last question on that thread that is, how do we raise that money? And I think this is quite an important point in our public debate, actually. not You know, a country with its own tax-raising powers in its own fiat can afford anything, actually, hypothetically. The question should always be, what do we expect the state to do with us? What is the state better at doing en masse, Mm. more efficient at doing? And how do we fund that rather than starting from this notion that we have a limited pot of money and 
you know, it's in my gift as the state to say, here, you take 1% and you take 3%. I don't think that's the right so way of going to, about any of So you're this. just saying directly state-funded? Look, there are many models. I mean, in Greece, you pay for the state broadcaster on your electricity bill. There's like a small levy oh. on your utility bill. In France, you pay for it by ringfest direct taxation, as I think you do in Germany. You know, every country has a, a public broadcaster, actually. It's not, it's a silly debate. It's a silly confected debate. But I think it does hide a real issue, which is how do we think of public services? Do we think as a limited pot of money that we throw scraps to this thing that's nice and that thing that's nice? Or do we want to reimagine what we want the state to do for us because mm. it does it better and cheaper and in a more neutral way and it doesn't try to squeeze profit out of us? What makes sense for the state to do and how much will that cost? The rest is, is actually follows quite simply. Henry, supporters of the BBC tend to sort of catastrophize the, you know, the end of the licence fee. Can you see a way in which, I mean, this has been suggested sort of it's subscription, but also sort of government grant to sort of fund the, sort of the, the, these really important services that maybe people are not going to, you know, um, pay for. And it would, you know, it's got such a strong brand. It would be able to sort of monetize things at the moment that it can't. Could you see a kind of rosier post-license fee scenario? I want to be really, yeah, sort of uh, optimistic about this or sort of innovative. I mean, I, I, just, I don't think so. I mean, I think one of the problems with subscription, if you're going to have free-to-wear, it just costs hundreds of millions of pounds to implement a system mm. whereby you can exclude people from from watching it. Mm. I, I mean, I think the attacks on the BBC are incoherent. I think, you know, on the one hand, they want it to be a real national patriotic broadcaster to pay the national anthem. On the other hand, they want it to be like Netflix. They want it to be less political, but they politicise it by, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. insisting that there are lots of Tories at the top of it. So, no, I'm, I, I'm not. I mean, I do think what, the one thing that the BBC needs to do at the moment, if you look at the figures about how much, on average, an average person in the UK, um, how much TV they watch, it's incredible. Hours and hours. And that's because there are some people who watch it all day. And that's how the linear model is set up. And I think the future of the BBC is to serve those people, those older people, a bit less and to focus on being and producing really high quality streamed content and to be streaming first and not to be like linear channels first. I think ultimately squeezing the budget is not the way to go. I remember when the left hated uh, Nick Robinson from the Today programme for being a former Tory activist. And now the right hate him for being a lefty who's always giving the government a hard time. Um, you talk about these sort of confected attacks. There was a good book that came out a year or so ago called, I think, The, the, the War on the BBC. Do you think there's anything the BBC can do that would quash accusations of left-wing bias? Or is it so important to the right that they'll, they'll just, you know, they, they can't let go of that idea? It's a really good question. I personally think it's just become an article of faith, a bit like believing whatever other institution is, is weighted against you. And it's sort of particular... It's particularly powerful at a time when you have this education split in the electorate that fears that, you know, and so you feel that these well-educated people in, in the BBC are all sort of smugly sitting in North London drinking, you know, oat cappuccinos and, like, they're not your, your people. But I think, like, that's not, that just doesn't reflect the breadth of, of BBC content. I mean, OK, so there are programmes when I tune on to the BBC, like Frankie Boyle's A New World Order, which mm. I find absolutely hilarious. Like, sometimes I find the lack of balance there a bit, disconcerting and it's just difficult like comedians just tend to be left-wing mm. and like jokes of left-wing jokes just seem to be funnier i mean could they scrap they scrap programs like that but then like antiques roadshow is kind of like an inherently traditional program where you have sort of colonial artifacts displayed as like part of britain's natural uh, national history so I kind of, I kind of feel like you just have to take the rough with the. Spoon. No, they mention any kind of royal coverage, which is like a, a, an orgy of sort of nationalism. Yes, yeah. but could they not balance that antique roadshow with antiques woke show, where um, <laughs> the hosts are constantly telling people that their grandparents were racist? Well, you bring your grandparent along, it's like no, you, that is only worth one pound. You, that grandfather, he's seriously racist. You bring in some artifacts. You know, my, my, my grandfather brought this back when he was serving overseas, and they just go. It's fucking racist trash, and then they confiscate it. It's just a way of evening things out. That's how the. Can like, I be the host of that? Show? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, but I, I, sorry, I just on Nadine Doris, who um, today I saw a clip of her saying that she was amazed that young people watch programs on YouTube. It's like, this is seriously the person deciding uh, the future of, of BBC. Yeah. But like John Whittingdale, who's pretty, like, who I think is instinctively on the right of the Tory party. Mm-hmm. I mean, he says that the licence fee is still the best, the best thing out there. And I think anyone who looks at the, the question seriously enough just doesn't believe half the crap. I mean, the newspapers have got a vested interest in bashing the BBC. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's sort of an exhausting debate because I don't think there are any interesting answers to it. It's just, you know, the, the status quo is pretty much where things should be. You need to change a few things. Do you, Alex, do you think it gives Labour a, a good line here, sort of, you know, save the BBC? Do you know, I think it does because everyone has complaints about bits of the BBC and everyone wants the BBC to reform in some way. I think there are very few people that wanted to disappear. And I think a, a sort of a political party who went out there with a campaign to save the NHS, save the BBC, vote for us, I think they do quite well. And they do quite well with older voters mm. with which Labour has had a problem getting a hearing. I think it's a big mistake, actually. I'm not putting money on this actually happening in 2027. No, I no, it won't happen. You. I don't know about you for a number of reasons. Mini success hosting antiques. <laughs> 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 It's almost the end of the show, so it's time to take a quick look at stories that we think aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Minnie, what's your Under the Radar story? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's super under the radar, but I'm really excited about the four-day workweek pilot that has just launched in the UK. It's got 30 companies taking part, goes on for six months, and it's led by an organisation called four day week global um, it will be tied to other pilots around the world but I think this will be one of the biggest positive changes that can be tied to the pandemic you know I don't think we'd be anywhere near this pilot if the p- pandemic hadn't happened and I'm really hopeful that the results will be you know everyone who can should be on a four-day work week yeah fantastic Alex So Byline Times uh, have put together a long read uh, as part of a collection, and I would encourage you all to go and look it up, about the the sort of horrific point at which the hostile environment for migrants meets the hostility that there is and has existed for a long time against homeless and destitute people. And they're looking at stories of basically EU migrants who – um, you know, reach out to a, to a charity or to a state uh, organization for help because they're down on their luck and they end up sort of being rounded up and deported. As obviously uh, an EU migrant that has been homeless uh, at some point in the past, I have a very personal stake in this. People's lives are not linear. You know, you might be down on your luck after four decades of paying tax Mm. or you might be down on your luck very temporarily and then end up you know with a big company that employs loads of people five years later we are citizens of this country and we deserve the same help and support as everyone else so um, several charities are mentioned there and I would urge everyone to support them. I'm going to go for this little story uh, that the Treasury has written off £4.3 billion of the £5.8 billion that was stolen from its emergency COVID schemes, including furlough, the self-employed income support programme and eat out to help out. Hmm. Expects to get only a quarter um, of that back. But that is out of a total of £81.2 billion they paid out overall. Yeah, I mean, we can afford the BBC, I'm tempted to say. You know, if we can give Dido Harding £37 billion for literally nothing, we can, give we can afford the BBC. You see, I'm actually ambivalent about this uh, because I feel like if you are paying out £80 billion to all these schemes to basically stop people's business going under and stop people from kind of, you know, um, economic catastrophe... If this is the percentage of just that just goes to like frauds, I don't know whether it's like I mean it's obviously a lot of money. <laughs> don't get me wrong, but I just wonder whether when you're doing this sort of stuff in haste on such a large scale, mm-hmm. 
whether you can ever kind of get to the point where there's basically no fraud or minimum fraud or all the fraud that you get back. So it's sort of a weird one because it feels scandalous that the Treasury is like, oh, well, I guess we're never getting that back. 5% is not a small percentage, you but know, of all the funds. I, like, don't th- like, I, I think if that's those, there's a lot in America as well. But if those were the figures States. on any kind of welfare benefit, <laughs> you would have every fucking newspaper jumping up and down. Yeah, it's the hypocrisy, isn't it? It's just, you know, fine. If they can write that off, they can write off other things too that they probably should have and haven't. Well, we go back to the sort of the magic money tree, which didn't exist mm. and then did exist and then doesn't exist again and just basically pops <laughs> up only when required uh, by the Conservative Party. That's why it's magic. <laughs> that's why it's magic. I mean, that, that's the clues in the name. That's I didn't realise that that was why it was magic. I see. It's just you have to give it a special Tory call and then it pops up. Um, Henry, what about you? Yeah, I'm I'm slightly struggling on this, but two things caught my eye this week. One was the sort of uh, slightly sad, uh, and sorry, they're a bit offbeat, but one was the slightly sad plight of puffins in the North Sea, um, which seem to be doing badly for reasons we don't really understand. And so I always think like of just these iconic things I see on my books all the time. I I would be very sad if they disappeared. And the other was a a New Yorker article about the, the thawing of Siberia's permafrost. When I was speaking to someone about this a few years ago, they just sort of they were trying to explain it in scientific terms, and then mm. they just went, "We're so fucked." And uh, <laughs> I just felt like the sort of the release of greenhouse gases, which is uh, you know in the soil in um, in Russia, is something that we haven't really uh, reckoned with. So I kind of, uh, if, if people are interested in that, then that's. A... I sometimes I feel less bleak after I read these articles because at least you you know you know what you're facing up to. It's like George Orwell saying, you know, down and out in Paris and London, you know, where, where you you all your life you fear going to the dogs, and once you're there, it's sort of a, a, a slight <laughs> relief. Anyway. This is good. This is good. This might cheer up uh, Boris Johnson. (laughs) I was scared my career was going to end in failure and disgrace. And now it is. I have no fear. It's quite funny, like, because he'll go through the Operation Red Meat phase. But then when it's really over, like Theresa May in her last months did like a net zero uh, target and all this. And I want, then he will do the stuff that he really wants to be remembered for. And so there will be this sort of, you know, there might be a slightly softer phase of him in the next couple of months. No, it won't. (laughs) <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I'm intrigued by this article. Yeah, the green case for Boris Johnson. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I, yeah, don't get the wrong, wrong idea here. Um, see you at the nearest coal mine. And that's the show. Thank you to Minnie. Thanks, everyone. Alex. Thank you. And our guest, Henry Mance. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Stay tuned for our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. It's a big thanks from me to Paul Watkins, Ken Scott, Kate Anstey, Jerry Blunt, Greg Surmage, Diana Dudgeon, and David Beck. Best wishes from me to Callum Findlay, Greg Weiberg, Janet, Megan, Mark Luscombe, Hannah Bond, and Carolyn Qualler. And thanks for me to Christopher Eden, Christine Smith, Rob Mitchell, Tom Ritchie, Rob Hassight, Mike Smart, and Julian Hiles. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Minnie Rahman. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. On the extra bit for Patreon backers this week, the next in an ongoing series where we give ourselves unreasonable amounts of power without (laughs) responsibility. If we woke up as the Director General of the BBC, which parts of the corporation would we change, introduce or scrap entirely? Uh, Who will be our first Director General? Alex. To be honest, um, I would actually scrap all the things that are really popular and do really well because I think that's actually where content is duplicated. I don't think there's any reason at all for BBC One to exist or Radio One. I think the 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 media landscape is crowded with channels that do that kind of context. Um well, they put adverts in, mate. Have you seen adverts? <laughs> yeah. Well, not not. Have when you heard radio adverts? Not when you're streaming. Yeah, no, but <laughs> seriously, are so bad. It, 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 look, it's a serious point. The, its value is in the stuff that commercially wouldn't be viable for anyone else to do, 
And so I don't get I don't get the point. I think Netflix is perfectly capable of doing the next Victor of Dibley and Sky is perfectly capable of doing Mrs. Brown Boys. I really don't get why I should be paying for Strictly Come Dancing. That's the bit of it that I don't get, even though it's hugely popular, because I don't think it's uniquely the 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 purview of a national broadcaster. I think news is... That was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support really does help us keep going. Thanks for listening and see you next week.